Welcome to the show. This is the Magician and the Fool podcast, and we are on episode number 18. My name is Dominic, and my co-host's name is Janice, and you will hear from him a little bit later. Today, we will be talking to Dr. James Rietveld about his work surrounding a version of the goddess Artemis that you may not be familiar with. We will be talking about Artemis of the Ephesians and his book, Artemis of the Ephesians, Mystery, Magic, and Her Sacred Landscape. Professor Rietveld's research involves a cross-disciplinary approach where he combines the areas of history, religion, and archaeology, and focuses on the Eastern Mediterranean, especially Asia Minor, during the Greco-Roman and Byzantine eras. His research is extremely comprehensive, and we only touch the tip of the iceberg during the interview. Before we start, I'd like to say thank you to our supporters on Patreon, as well as those of you who have reached out with kind words of support, those of you who have given reviews on iTunes, and those of you who are sharing our episodes on social media. We appreciate it very much. If you'd like to support us, feel free to pledge as little as $1 a month over at patreon.com. You can write us a review on iTunes, or not. We're just happy that someone's listening. The show is a lot of work, but it is a labor of love, and as always, we dedicate it to Hermes, and this episode in particular to Artemis. Okay, I am here today with Dr. James Rietveld, and we are here to talk about Artemis of the Ephesians and his book on that subject. Uh, welcome to the show, Dr. Rietveld. Thank you very much. <laughs> it's yeah. great to be here. I'm really looking forward to this. I, I enjoyed your book immensely. Oh, thank you. I'm going to probably keep repeating that throughout the interview. And just for the listeners, typically we have uh, Jen is here with us, but I think he might be uh, taking a nap or something, and his he forgot to set his alarm. So we won't have Janice, at least initially. Maybe he'll jump in later. But I want to get right into it because we have a lot to talk about. Um, the book, like I said, it's 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 awesome, and it's just jam-packed full of information. So for nerds like me and probably the listeners, this book is just a goldmine and uh, – Thank you for doing it. It looks it it seems like it's it was a a work of of love and passion and you you were really immersed in this uh, subject matter. Oh, absolutely. I I spent so much time uh doing this research and it goes way back into the uh late 80s into into the 90s and this is just the, the final culmination of of years of time in spending uh, in archives. Uh, doing research uh, at Ephesus itself. In fact, I've clocked over the years about almost, just almost eight months of time just at Ephesus alone, living there at Seljuk uh, at the Australian New Zealand Pension, which is directly next to the uh, German archaeological, sorry, it's German, sorry, the Austrian archaeological site, uh, sorry, camp. Uh, and uh, I had lots of interactions with them, and uh, and so yeah, so it was it was definitely a, a rewarding experience. Yeah, that sounds like total immersion, which is probably the best way to 
research uh, a topic like this. Um, so before we get too deep into Ephesia and the Ephesians and Artemis, can you maybe give a, a general introduction, a little bit about yourself, uh, so the listeners can kind of have a context of who you are? Okay. In fact, uh, what I'll do is I will do that. At the same time, I will bring in the my connection with Artemis Ephesia within that story. Maybe sure, that will yes. even be that, you know, killing two birds with one stone, although that's so much cruel, I would never do that. <laughs> so, but, uh, so basically, um, my PhD is in the area of history, religion, and archaeology. And I received that from Claremont Graduate University, uh, finishing it up in 2006. Uh, so, and my fields within that uh, include Greco-Roman religions, a history of Christianity, and I minored in Islam and Hinduism, and I did a lot also with uh, Greco-Roman philosophy, especially Platonism, so that was a lot of fun. But uh, my academic experience goes further back to Cal State Fullerton, uh, and I attended there uh, for many years, and I received my master's there. But let's go back, way back. Uh, how in the world did I actually get in uh, to Ephesus and Artemis and I think that uh, it turned out, you'll love this, I had a professor, uh, his name is Dr. Charles Frizee, who unfortunately has recently passed away this year, who was my mentor. And what he did is he created a class that was called Mediterranean Cities. Sounds like a great class. And it was 1989, and I took this class, and uh, the idea was everybody gets to pick an ancient city, and then each class time, uh, they would go around in a circle and talk about what's happening in that city during a designated period of time. So let's say, for example, the first class would be prehistoric times. So we go around and talk about our cities, and then we go through time, through the Paleolithic, Neolithic age, to the Greco-Roman period, and so forth. So that was the idea. Great idea. Yeah. A problem, and of course, I problem is is that not everybody is up to talking, and so I wanted to do uh, Germania. I wanted to do the ancient, actually, the city of Cologne, uh, Germany. And my professor looked at me and he says, "You know what? You're doing Ephesus." I said, "I don't want to do Ephesus. I want to do <laughs> Cologne." He said, "No, no, you're doing Ephesus." And I thought, okay. So I started doing Ephesus, and I really got into it, too much into it. So. During the beginning of the class, uh, during the semester, it was just all of us kind of equally talking. But as time goes on, people get a little bit more shy, and they're not talking as much. So Dr. Prezee says, why don't you just kind of fill in the time, because we have to be here for an hour and 15 minutes, and keep talking about Ephesus. So he <laughs> forced me to do all this research on Ephesus, and by the end, the class became a course on the city of Ephesus with me teaching the class. And I got recognition as being a preceptor. Wow. Well, what happened is, is that, okay, I said, now I'm going to want to do my master's thesis at the Cal State. And I said, I'm going to go ahead and do, you can guess, uh, Roman Germany, <laughs> Germania. And you know what he said? He says, you did all that research. Why don't you do it? Your master's on the city of Ephesus. And I thought, wow, okay, maybe I'll do that. So what happened is I started that process. I was in the master's program from 1991 to uh, 1997. 
And uh, I went to Ephesus in 93, and it uh, turned out that uh, it turned out to be a walking tour of the city of Ephesus, as if you're in the middle part of the second century CE, hmm. telling you what's on the left and right, using primary sources, inscriptions. It was a lot of fun. 997 pages. Wow. It's the longest master's thesis at Cal State Fullerton. Uh, wow. It's, a large, it's, a, it's in four volumes. From there, <laughs> it's ridiculous. Hey, what's up, guys? Hey, welcome. Yeah, so, so when it comes to immersion, that's the beginning, if that makes any sense. So, so yeah. then I became more interested in Artemis in connection to Ephesus. I realized that all roads, all ideas in Ephesus leads to Artemis of the Ephesians, yeah. and that became important to me. Well, I decided though that I'm going to go to UCI and I'm going to work on, of all things, the Christian catacombs of Rome. <laughs> so I'm working on this and, 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 and unfortunately UCI, the people I put together, some are very sweet, but uh, some were not. So they started fighting amongst themselves as that happens. And so I was really sad and depressed. So I went to Claremont to a conference and this is pretty remarkable. Claremont Graduate University, uh, a conference put on uh, through the, the school religion. And um, I got, went, went there, and I was feeling down. And I talked to somebody, maybe you've heard of his name before. His name is Marvin Meyer. Yeah. You recognize yeah. that name? Yeah. So he, he just, he, you know, I always wanted to meet him. He was, he was there in front of everybody, uh, talking away. And I, was, I just kind of, I was, I was the one, only one, I guess, into his talk. And he approached me afterwards, and we went over to uh, out to eat together. And, he, and I talked about what uh, what I what I what I did. And he heard about the talk. Sorry, he heard about sorry my my master's thesis, which is 997 pages on Ephesus. And he was so interested in Artemis of the Ephesians, he started asking these questions, and I answered back. And then he said, "You know what? You have to meet." the head of the religion department, the religion school, excuse me, her name is Karen Torgerson. And so all of a sudden, that, just that day, I got thrown in front of her, and, uh, I, and I, I said, and she says, oh, I hear you want to do uh, a, your, your dissertation on Artemis of the Ephesians. <laughs> I said, uh, yeah, sure. So <laughs> you're in. Welcome to Claremont Graduate University. We'll give you a partial scholarship. Congratulations. I had no wow. letters, nothing. Wow. And I got in in one day to a, wow. a, 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 for my dissertation. So you can see it was pretty interesting, amazing whirlwind. Yeah. And at that point, then I went to Ephesus again and did research, got to know the people real well. Uh, that time, uh, uh, just learning as much as I can, spending time, became a member of the Getty, getting access to their archives. Uh, and, and flying internationally to all these different locations, uh, and uh, and as a result, I put together my dissertation. After my dissertation, uh, the professors in charge all had ideas of how I could expand upon it, and so I let it sit. And that was that was 2006. I let it sit for a few years, and then around 2012. Uh, I got the nudge that I need to make this into a book. Mm -hmm. And uh, so 
Uh, actually, I started that process as early as, uh, as, as uh, 2008. I wanted to do it as a book. And then eventually it was published in 2014. And uh, those are all my photos in the book. And those are my maps that I drew in the book. A lot of people say, hey, you got to give credit to the photos of whoever took those pictures. I'm like, well, I took those pictures. Those are mine. Uh, <laughs> I was there for so long. You know, I, you know, I have so many. I, I'm looking right now. Because I, I, those days, uh, digital wasn't always, I mean, it was all digitized, but I, I always liked printing them out. I had this huge, gigantic stack of photo albums that, that could potentially, on, one on top of each other, reach the ceiling. So, yeah, I have mm. all the photos I need because if you're there for almost, almost eight months, you have nothing to do but do research and take pictures. So, yeah. So, and I obviously traveled all around other places besides that and took pictures there. I even, uh, the pictures of Artemis of the Ephesians in Rome, I actually took those pictures in Rome, <laughs> went there and took, you know, so yeah. So there you have it. Lots of fun. But that kind of tells you who I am and tells you about the Artemis story. That's awesome. That was, that sounds like quite a whirlwind. And to, to kind of mention the book again, um, it's, it's just jam packed full of color photos. So it's a high quality book. And I mean, there's a color photo on, on like every other page practically, and it's like 350 pages. So, um, you, you get, I felt like I was immersed in this uh, subject matter as well. Um, oh yeah. Well, it was, I thought to myself, you know, my dad is a professor uh, of history and, uh, I remember as, as a kid, he was trying to check out books, for his students, and he's slipping through these books, and I'm going, what are you looking for, he says, and here, here's, an, here's a very well, well-known academic, uh, he's actually one of the leading scholars of Abraham Lincoln, uh, and uh, he's going through this, and he's saying, I'm looking for pretty pictures, like, <laughs> why, he, he said, because, he says, students need to see that, the, said, a picture is worth a thousand words, you can describe it all you want, but if they can see it, how much better the publication is for it. And yeah. so I, I thought, well, my, my book needs to be full of pictures. So I'm not only describing it, I can say, and if you don't believe me in a sense, look, there it is, you know, you know, right. there's Artemis of the Ephesians and look, look, see, she has nipples. I took that picture myself. You know, <laughs> these kind of things. Yeah. So, um, let's, let's break off for one second to, uh, welcome Janice to the show. Janice, thanks for joining us. Yeah. Glad to be here. Thanks for your patience. You know, that story to me sounds as if there was almost a divine hand involved in that. The way you were just pulled in without even really needing any recommendations or anything into that. It almost is one of those eruptions of the divine into mundane life as if, as if Artemis of the Ephesians wanted you to, do this book. Well, you know, I, I can want me to tell you a story that definitely will fit the context here. Um, sure. you'll, you'll, you'll like this. Um, uh, I discovered something at Ephesus, and I do get credit for it. Uh, and you see in the book, uh, I, I've, I've identified the Ortega Gardens. And what happens is this. Uh, now, according to Greco-Roman mythology, Leto gave birth to Artemis and Apollo, right? And you have these various stories. Well, a lot of people have uh, this on Delos or some of the other islands 
But the Ephesians believed that Artemis, uh, uh, sorry, Leto, gave birth to Artemis and Apollo uh, in a place known as the Ortigia Gardens, south of Ephesus. And according to Strabo, as well as Pausanias, this was in a very important site uh, where they celebrated the birth of Artemis of the Ephesians, uh, full of various celebrations. There was a procession that went out uh, to this particular garden at various times of the year. Uh, and uh, it was known for various temples there and sacred sites. And uh, they mentioned uh, ancient stone uh, uh, monuments. And, uh, and the funny thing is, uh, nobody could figure out where it is. <laughs> so where is this place? So it's in my book. It's documented. So what I did is uh, I, I, I got together with the archaeologists and I spent time with the Austrian archaeologists. And they said that, uh, that within the Ephesus Park, they figured out the Via Sacra and the road that leads to the Ortega Gardens. But unfortunately, because uh, of the groundwater situation, a swamp is now there. And so the road disappears into the swamp. And so they don't know where the road goes. Then I talked to the uh, American archaeologists, and they figured out the level of the water, where, you know, what, where the water was at different times. And I deducted that it was uh, a Minoan site or even earlier. So what I did is I realized that the water level was higher in antiquity, and I calculated around uh, 1,500 BCE, and put a whole bunch of the area underwater, but left open what's called the Arvalia Valley. Then what I did is, is I looked at the artificial mounds in that area, and then I talked to the Turkish archaeologists when it comes to rescue archaeology, and they kept finding images of Leto uh, connected to Artemis and Apollo in that area. And I was like, okay, this is it. And so this is the part where you'll be interested. Every time I try to lead a group there, something stopped it. We, uh, at one point, I had all the archaeologists, they're all excited, uh, Sabine Loudstadter and the others from the, from the Turkish Museum, and we're, we're taking our, the van out there, and we got into a, a motorcycle hit us, and we had to stop. So, uh, the next day, I was so determined that I took my friend Mehmet, and we walked out there, and that morning, the forestry service cut a swath across an artificial hill and the artificial hill revealed all these antiquities. <laughs> I happened to be there that morning when the Forestry Service just cut an artificial swath. And there's all the pottery wow. fragments. I do have pictures in the book. Uh, subsequently, you call the military, and then you call the police, and then you call your fellow archaeologists, which is what you have to do. Right. And then I brought uh, them to the site, and they identified it, and they said it's Ortega. Yo, wow. Yeah, so, so yeah, it's pretty... Very yeah, exciting. So what are what is what are the mathematical that chances I have? That's remarkable. Yes, and all that's in my in the book too. Exactly how how that was put together. So I go through in the latter half of the book of Ortigia and tell you how to piece it together because everybody had a piece of the puzzle, but unfortunately they weren't putting it together. And I, I see that a lot with academics. Not to not to go against my my own kind, but I, I noticed that oftentimes. Uh, there's so much focus on being on one subject or one area 
sometimes cross-disciplinary ideas are, are lost. And, uh, and also some are experts at technology and others are not. And when it comes to archaeologists, many don't like sharing their information with the others. So I was like a neutral part of getting to know everybody. And that's what kind of put it all together. So it seems like some kind of hand was involved in that, if that makes any sense. Oh, absolutely. Uh, where, where I would get credit for it. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I think that answers your question a little bit. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, there's so much, so much to talk about when it comes to this, this book. But uh, it was def- definitely a labor of love. And it did take a long time to really, really put together. Uh, but, uh, yeah. Anyone who picks up the book will, will be able to realize and see how much effort was put, it, put into this work. Um, can we talk, because something, something that really struck me, um, I wasn't really too knowledgeable about Ephesia or, or this version of Artemis, uh, Artemis Ephesia. And I was shocked at how big of a deal Ephesia was in the ancient world and how big of a deal Artemis Ephesia was. I mean, this was huge. I mean, oh, yeah. they had the Artemisium was one of the seven wonders of, of the ancient world. I mean, this was a big, a big deal. So can you talk about maybe Ephesia itself, uh, sure. a little bit about the geography, the culture, um, and maybe its significance in the context of, of the ancient world and its connections to other places like Egypt? Sure, absolutely. Okay, so when it comes to the city of Ephesus, now, the city of Ephesus was really important. Uh, the site, it, it, it really important all the way back, uh, even back into the uh, second millennium BCE. Uh, and it was connected to a group of people known as the Luvians or Luvians, as well as the Hittites. And it was a leading city known as Apossus. And uh, even in that time, uh, it was important uh, during the, uh, you know, 1300, 1200 BCE. And even at that time, also, there were ties with Egypt. So there was a lot of interactions. Uh, in fact, there was a league, uh, the, uh, the Asua League, and then the Arzawa League. Uh, and, many, and we know from archaeology that they interacted with the Egyptians. We also know that now that uh, the area of Western uh, Anatolia, which is Turkey today, was uh, occupied by the Minoans. In fact, an exciting moment was in 2008, I was actually there with Sabine Loudstadter, the director under the Austrians of Ephesus, when they were excavating the Minoan ruins uh, down below Al-Yasuluk Hill. Uh, so very exciting. So this, these are, and then the Mycenaeans uh, took over from there. So it was, it was an important sacred site. There's a, there's a sacred tree there. There's a sacred spring there. And uh, then Apostas, uh fell uh, uh, to the Hittites and others. And eventually, of course, the, uh, it, when it revived again, you have the Sea Peoples. And the city was no longer as important. But then uh, under the Lydians, under Croesus, the city became important again. Uh, for the five into the, the, the 400s, and at which time uh, there was an ancient sacred site dedicated to the great goddess, the mother goddess, Magna Mater, known as Kibbele. And, uh, and so that was important. 
and uh, but what, what was interesting is that it turns out that we know that sometime after the Sea People, around uh, around 1100 BCE, or perhaps a little earlier or later, we know that the Greeks also started to colonize that area, and even more so during the 8th and 700s. Now, get this. When they arrive at the site of what will become Ephesus, sure, there was already a shrine dedicated to Kibbele, but get this. There was a, the, the Greeks decided that they're going to create a shrine next to the one of Kibbele dedicated to Artemis, who is the goddess of the moon and hunt. So you, you literally have in the archaeological uh, record two major sacred sites next to each other, one dedicated to Kibbele, which is the Anatolian great mother goddess, and the other one dedicated uh, to Artemis, the Greek goddess of the hunt, who's a great virgin goddess. You see where I'm going here. So what Croesus did, or some other Lydian, is tear down both those temples and make one temple dedicated to an amalgamated goddess that combines both Kibbele and the uh, virgin goddess. So you know what happens then. At the moment you combine a mother goddess with a virgin goddess, you immediately get, by the 500s BCE, you get a great virgin mother. Interesting, isn't that fascinating? Now what will happen is a progression because this goddess becomes representative of not only many of the goddesses of Anatolia, but of the goddesses, uh, the, the goddess, of course, obviously of the Greeks. And because of that, it becomes a focal point in not only a religious sense, but a cultural sense. Uh, even a political sense of much of the world of Western Anatolia. So it becomes a great center. Ephesus is located along uh, a great harbor, uh, which is easily navigatable. So you got that as well. There's a bounty of olives and grapes. The, the, the soil is extremely fertile. And lo and behold, the, the Temple of Artemis itself seemed to bring a union between the Greeks and those of Anatolia because they all agree upon Artemis, who is the Artemis of the city of Ephesus. It's kind of qualified. And because of that, uh, because uh, Artemis was connected uh, to, uh, of, of Anatolia, was connected to protection, people started putting their money there. And it became the bank of much of Asia Minor, which is, which is what the, the Greeks call Anatolia later on. I mean, they call it uh, from, because usually you say Anatolia, by the time the Greeks get there, they call it Asia Minor, same area as will become Turkey later on. So what will happen is that now uh, this temple becomes one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, you know, with all the riches and people using it as a bank. It's burned down and it is rebuilt again, supposedly burns down uh, the, <laughs> the, the, the day that, that Alexander the Great uh, was born. The claim was Artemis was not there at the temple. Uh, she's she's watching uh, Alexander the Great being born, protecting him. And of course, you know, they made Alexander the Great feel pretty guilty about that when he arrived. So of course, <laughs> he gave lots of money to building up the temple even more. But the point is, is that that temple was even more magnificent than the previous one. So you can understand with a combination of a great strategic site uh, fertility when it comes to the fields uh, and what it represents. The city was always top of the, you know, 
main, you know, really important. And so by the time we get to the Roman period, it had a population of around 250,000. It's a lot of people. It was the fourth uh, largest city uh, in the ancient world during the first and second centuries. Uh, so you have Rome as first, Alexandria second, Antioch third, but Ephesus was fourth. And so that's, and you could see why it was so important. And uh, so many things happened as a result of that. The cult of Artemis the Ephesian, uh, Ephesia, uh, well, as you know, Greek colonists, as they move around, uh, many people, they brought with them their worship of Artemis of the Ephesians uh, to the west and to the east. And so uh, you have a place that's called Marsala. Today it's called Marseille. And you have uh, the, the, the cult of Artemis of the Ephesians established there. You have you had it established in Spain uh, throughout what is now France. In those days, it was called Gaul. Uh, the establishment of the cult, complete with temples, were also around the whole Black Sea, throughout Asia Minor, uh, even uh, into the Levant, uh, Caesarea Maritima. There was a worship of Artemis of the Ephesians there. Uh, we have we have of course the figures of Artemis of, of, of the Ephesians was considered. Uh, very important. His, the, the statue of Artemis is not only her image, but is looked at as magical. And so people brought that with them, like a magical amulet to protect them from any kind of harm. And so we find these figurines all over the, the place to the point where this is where it became common knowledge that it was Artemis of the Ephesians that was the most important uh, goddess throughout the Mediterranean and not the others. And I'll bring this up. Uh, let's bring up a hostile source. So you have the Bible and the Acts of the Apostles. And the Acts of the Apostles, uh, chapter uh, 19, actually states that Artemis of the Ephesians was worshipped by everybody. Everybody knew that. It was you know, famous. Uh, and also Pausanias mentions the fact that everybody knew Artemis of the Ephesians and were uh, you know, amazed at her renown. And so what happens is that uh, her, her worship in those days was everywhere. Here's the problem. And as I see it, how come we don't know that? That's probably the next question, right? Right. How come that information is lost? Artemis of the Ephesians was super popular with the common people, the common clay, the regular guy on the streets. The literati preferred other goddesses, you know, they, or or the, or the Greek Artemis, or Isis, uh, with the mystery cults, which, by the way, sometimes cost quite a bit to be a part of, and people just simply did not have those kind of resources. And, but for the commoner, even in, in the Acts of the Apostles, uh, it is the silversmiths that get angry when Paul appears to be attacking their goddess. And we have inscriptions throughout Ephesus and throughout the world where it's the merchants and the traders and the people... The, 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 the mariners and others who are the ones who revere her, but they're not going to leave, leave a lot of writing left. They're not going to leave a lot of literature. They're not going to be composing various works that talk about their goddess because they're the commoners. Uh, we have inscriptions, and, uh, but uh, I think I'm answering the question. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah, so no, you, have, you have, and so uh, in that sense, yes, and, and, and then, of course, Artemis 
was very important, uh, even in Egypt, Artemis of the Ephesians. And there is an amalgamation with Isis. And that comes about over a period of time. Uh, and it is gradual, but uh, it does become a little more rapid because, again, people don't know this, but during the Hellenistic era, during the time of the Ptolemies, uh, during the uh, 200s uh, into the, uh, the BCE, you have a period of time where, where, the, uh, where the Ptolemies actually owned much of what is now uh, Western Turkey. In those days, Western Asia Minor. So Egypt literally had Ephesus. It was their territory. <laughs> so, so that's pretty direct. And there was, and then of course there was a very close relationship between Ephesus and Alexandria. And so more and more uh, they put Artemis into an ISIS position. So we'll see, for example, uh, there will be uh, an inscription or a plate or on a lamp. They'll have. They'll have a consort of Isis, that is Serapis, but they'll have Artemis instead. It'll be Artemis and Serapis together. And so we'll even see this in coinage. We'll have it minted together where Isis is instead Artemis and then, uh, and then Serapis. Or you'll see something interesting. You'll see an image of, of Isis in Ephesus as labeled as Artemis. Or, so you're going to see this quite a bit. So you're going to see, or you're going to see uh, other kinds of representations that show that there's an amalgamation to the point where the universal goddess idea of Isis gets translated over to the universal goddess idea of Artemis of the Ephesians. Because Isis was looked at eventually during the Hellenistic age as taking on under, under her, her mantle all of these uh, other goddesses as her worship spread and Artemis of the Ephesians did the same thing but what she did is also co-opt Isis as well so so Artemis starts off uh, of the Ephesians starts off uh, co-opting Kimberly right from the beginning you saw how that works and the great mother goddess and then later on uh, she'll take under her mantle Isis and Hecate uh, and Demeter and it'll all be combined and to the point where they declare her a queen of heaven and universal goddess. That's fascinating, and there's so much to unpack there. I mean, we can go in so many different directions. Um, the, <laughs> Sorry. The, the, no, no, I love it. But the, the Christian element itself could be a, an entire podcast, I think, um, the Christian yes. in Ephesians. Yeah, yeah I mean, the relationship between uh, the, the figure of Mary as she began to really take form as as a reification of both uh, Isis and Artemis of Ephesus is a fascinating study. Yeah. And then that's notwithstanding the point that Serapis was even called Crestus, yeah. which means the good. Yeah. And the iconography of Jesus as a grown man, which seems to have come later, uh, seems to be completely based on the image of Serapis, which right. in turn was based on Osiris, who was a dying and resurrecting God. You got it. Yeah, exactly. And there is a lot to unpack. The fun part uh, is, and, I'll, and I, this is one of the questions, so I guess I'll, I'll sort of knock this one out a little bit, is looking into not so much Christian history, but so much into instead looking into what I like to call Christian mythology and when it comes to understanding the various traditions. And I'll tell you this right now. So 
what happens. I'll give you the answer to the merry, merry part. Uh, so we'll go merrily on our way. Uh, so there is, uh, in the Gospel of John, uh, you have uh, Jesus is on the cross, and he looks down to the Apostle John and says to John, Behold your mother, referring to Mary, his mother. And according to the Gospel of John, ever after that, Mary went wherever John went. Well, we know from patristic sources that a John, although sometimes we have three or four different Johns connected with the Johannine tradition or the Gospel of John, a John did end up in Ephesus. So you get the the point. What happens is, well, they make the deduction, not necessarily true, that if John went to Ephesus, well, then obviously Mary went to Ephesus too with him and must have uh, uh, died or assumed there. In fact, when you go to Ephesus, there's the House of the Virgin Mary, which is considered a Catholic holy site. So that is the, the assumption that she went with him. Then uh, what, what happens is that she, whether the story is true or not, it's not the point, uh, because most of our sources talking about Mary at the city of Ephesus comes from the 300s CE, at the very time where the Artemisian cult is declining, and of course, uh, Marianology, especially with the three Cappadocians, is ascending. So it's during this period of time where Mary starts becoming more important, specifically at the city of Ephesus. Well, what I find is fascinating uh, is that that, um, Mary then, uh, as time goes on, uh, becomes uh, understood as a great virgin who was a mother. Well, she, I, I think she went to the wrong city because here you have a city already supposedly 500 years before, I mean, we know 500 years before her supposed arrival uh, to Ephesus, they're all worshiping a great virgin mother. And now she supposedly gets there in the first century CE, and she is understood later on as a great virgin mother. So you can see where people are going to get a little confused where a virgin mother arrives at a place where they worship a virgin mother at least for the last 500 years since Croesus refounded the temple. Does that make sense? So the mythologies are going to start becoming confused by the time we get uh, to the 300s. It gets so confused that uh, uh, when they start uh, taking down, especially after the, um, uh, the edict of Theodosius I in 391 and 392, the edict which, of course, uh, bans paganism, at that moment, many of these temples in, in Ephesus were closed down. What we now know is as many of those temples were rededicated to Artemis. Now it gets more interesting because I'm sorry, rededicated, excuse me, to Mary. What gets really interesting is the temple of Serapis uh, was sometimes connected to Artemis, and it become it becomes a temple dedicated, sorry, a church dedicated to Mary. We now know uh, that the temple of Artemis, even though it was in ruins, was also converted to the worship of Mary. Now it gets better because then uh, you're going to have uh, uh, the Queen of Heaven, which is Artemis, 
will become the queen of heaven that is now Mary. They also have within the coins showing that uh, during the, uh, I have pictures of it, during the, 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 the 200s CE, you have, uh, you have uh, Artemis of the Ephesians uh, gaining a veil around her. And she already has her arms outstretched, very much like Mary. So even the imagery transfers over gradually. It's a really fascinating story. And then finally, in the year 431, they, uh, they choose, the uh, church fathers choose to have uh, the, the great uh, third ecumenical council at the city of Ephesus, trying to decide whether Mary is the, the mother of Christ, you know, Christotokolos, or if she is the mother of God, Theotokolos. And obviously they chose Ephesus because they know that the, the religion, uh, the beliefs between uh, the cult of Artemis of the Ephesians and the cult of uh, the Virgin Mary had become so mixed up, they knew that the the populace would not stand for Mary being denigrated uh, as simply the mother of Christ. And that's exactly what happened. Uh, what happened is the Ephesians rioted. They declared that she is Theotokos. Theotokos. Uh, they took those uh, bishops who would vote against this idea. They put them into an apartment complex during a hot summer day, and many of them fell ill and a few died. And then, therefore, it was proclaimed at the Third Ecumenical Council that Mary was the mother of God. But at that moment, so many attributes of the cult of Artemis of the Ephesians went directly into the worship of Mother Mary. Mm-hmm. From there, the idea uh, spread to the West. Uh, Santa Maria de Maggiora in, in Rome was commissioned, and hence the Marianology was really power. Oh, oh, that's it in a nutshell. How's that? That was great. And uh, yeah, it's, it's fascinating that, that the House of Mary, uh, I believe it, it overlooks, the, the alleged House of Mary overlooks the, the Temple of Artemis. And, well, or well actually, on? no, it, it's, be, it's better than that. No, that's, I, no, I love that. I, uh, it's, it's her house overlooks the, looks the Ortega Gardens. Oh, okay. And see, this is really good because Leto gave birth to Artemis. Right. And and so now you have now you have Mary's house overlooking the Ortigia Gardens, who is supposedly gave birth to you know you know to Christ. See how that works. It's, so you have that mirror effect. It's almost as though in order to survive Artemis, the goddess transformed into this 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 new form. Um, I mean, yes. That's, that's a fascinating way to look at it. Um, that was a great yeah. breakdown. <laughs> No, no, you, no! You did a great job. That's great. <laughs> um, so let's let's step back from Christianity because I, I think we're going to probably touch on it a little bit later when we talk about maybe more in more detail the fall of of the cult of sure. Artemis. Um, but what makes Artemis um, Ephesia unique? Um, and we can start maybe visually because that's the most striking um, aspect. Um, can you maybe talk about? Uh, the unique unique aspect of of Artemis Ephesia as opposed to maybe just regular Artemis, um, because there's some pretty striking um, uh, details with Artemis Ephesia. Well, first of all, uh, as a breakdown, looking at her image, uh, you have the tholos, which is the the high conical hat that you see on her. Uh, then you have uh, you look down further, 
and you have a very forward-facing face with almond-shaped eyes. And then you move further down, and you have a, something that's like a, a wreath-like area that sometimes has the image of the image of the zodiac. Sometimes, usually around five images of the zodiac, but sometimes a representations of of animals or or the wildlife. And then below that, you have these very odd egg-like shapes, these protuberances, which we'll talk about a little bit, that look almost like breasts. And then below that, you have the legs solidly together, almost block-like, and you have various registers uh, of different scenes uh, there. And then, of course, it closes with feet. Uh, you have uh, also uh, from the hat, the tholos, you have a veil that uh, that is pretty much uh, relegated to the very back uh, and has like rope-like ends. And so that's kind of, it's very strange in shape. And then, of course, the arms are outstretched oftentimes or are kind of uh, held forward. And there happens to be what looks like two, uh, like a staff on each side that are either upholding that, the arms or they are, or they are some kind of uh, magical staff of, of some sort. Now, the protuberances, I, everybody goes, ah, they're breasts. You know, she has multiple breasts. Well, then you have other people say, oh, no, 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 they're not breasts. They are bee eggs. Other people will say, they're not bee eggs. Uh, these uh, happen to be uh, the flashes of the zodiac of whole things. Or others will say they're ostrich eggs. And people just don't know what they are. So there's all these theories. Or hanging fruit is another one. Bull testicles. And, yeah, bull testicles. Uh, by the, the yeah, a Swiss scholar, Sateri, he also mentions the fact they're bull testicles. And I do have an answer for all of that. And my answer is maybe and yes. <laughs> <laughs> see, here's the problem. Uh, and I get into it in the book. So if you want to, uh, for those listening, if you want to read the book, you really, you really want to pay attention to the section. It's, it's, it's exciting. Because I go through all the scholastic perspectives concerning these protuberances and what exactly they are. And, um, and I'll tell you what they are. So you are now going to know by the end of this little spiel exactly what they are. Isn't that great? Can't wait. Although it may not be satisfying to most, but here we are. First of all, there is an early image of Artemis of the Ephesians. It's called the Endios statue because it was made by a certain man by the name Endios who sculpted it. Uh, this statue is very simplified. Uh, it has a lady with a with forward-facing uh, braided hair, uh, very small breasts. Uh, it's it's a typical archaic Greek-looking image with a little bit of Anatolian influence thrown in for good measure. Uh, and we know that this image uh, was uh, most likely uh, made uh, out of wood. Uh, you know, we have various theories of what kind of wood it was made out of, including the Lygos tree, right? Uh, and, uh, and I have some little exciting information on this one. Be before even the Endios uh, uh, sculpture or carving was made, uh, there was even an earlier image. And my, my uh, Anton Bammer, who I got to know uh, at Ephesus, he's the lead archaeologist there, 
uh, he was digging at the site of the Temple of Artemis, and he excavated a carefully buried earlier form of Artemis that dates even before the NBO statue. And the wood had decayed, but all the ornaments around it survived, right down to the, 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 the clips that held the mantle, right down to the amber beads. Uh, so just the wood wasn't there. So, but, uh, but we know that basically it was not too large an image, but the Indios statue was there for many years. Well, what will happen is, is that we talked about Herostratus, and I shouldn't say his name because uh, he's the one who burned down the Temple of Artemis, supposedly intentionally, uh, but other people say maybe not. We'll go into that if you want to know. And uh, because of that, I believe that the Envio statue didn't escape. It may have been destroyed. It may have escaped. I don't know. But what's going to happen is that suddenly, instead of this kind of image reflected throughout Ephesus and throughout the world, you're going to see another image that's completely different, completely alien to the Envio's simple archaic statue. And that's the one that is polymastic that has the multiple breasts, uh, supposedly, and uh, uh, these protuberances. And it's like, well, where in the world does this come from? And uh, what will happen is that even what's called the beautiful Artemis and the great Artemis, these are pretty big statues that are in Ephesus today, which were visible to all, show these, these protuberances and they're breast-like. And uh, the question is, well, what is that? Uh, many scholars will say that what's happening is that the indigenous Anatolian culture that's pre-Greek is reasserting itself in the iconography of Artemis of the Ephesians during the time where pluralism and multiple belief systems are more acceptable especially as we get into the second into the first centuries BCE. And so you're going to have, in a sense, these earlier stratums reasserting itself into the cult image. I hope this, hope this makes sense. Yeah. So, so you have now. So, so now we take a look at, these, at what these things are. What are they? Well, it looks like, in my opinion, um, I believe that at first they do represent something that is hanging, uh, like uh, that has to do with fertility. I think it could be anything from bull testicles. It could be also uh, represent uh, breasts of the Amazons. I know you have that idea too. Remember they cut one breast off? Oh, yeah. Uh, but they also could represent hanging fruit. And I like the hanging fruit idea because it turns out that the cult of Artemis of the Ephesians takes on a lot of the ideas and beliefs uh, of the indigenous goddess of Anatolia, who's known as Kibli, but she's also known as Demeter. <laughs> and we know that the word Demetor, right, day, uh, is, was earlier, you have the word Gai, so Gaia, Mater, which means earth, mother. And it turns out uh, throughout Anatolia and even into Greece, they would hang fruit around Demeter, representing the, the first fruits, because she was connected to, obviously, the, the Earth's fertility. And so Artemis of the Ephesians, we know 
took on aspects of Demeter. There was even a thermophoria that was uh, complete with uh, uh, pig sacrifices uh, discovered in the archaeological record at the Artemisian itself. We know that Demeter merged together with Artemis, even at the uh, 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 at the what do you call the, the court area, the civic area of, of the city where Demeter, it's called the Pritanium, where Demeter was worshipped, Artemis was worshipped there too, and they continued offering their first fruits to Demeter even into the first and second century CE. So I think that it it, it was something hanging like fruit, uh, and it looks like uh, it's too low to be breasts. Yeah, I agree. But this, you know. But now I'll tell you what happens. As time goes on, religion starts to evolve. And you have the ancient collective religion uh, that has to do with the agrarian cycles uh, and later on the police. And in this sense, the hanging fruit represents these communities. But the moment you get into the time where the uh, the Hellenistic Ptolemies and others get involved in the story of Ephesus is the moment where you have Isis enter into that mixture. At that moment, Artemis moves from being a collective agrarian goddess to a personal goddess that takes care of individuals that you can pray to and call up for protection uh, on an individual basis. At that moment, those breasts, it's interesting. Look at the iconography. Look at Fleischer. He catalogs all these. Those breasts go, sorry, those protuberances that look like hanging fruit start to, um, how do I put this, go higher and higher up the chest. <laughs> it's like, oh, something's happening. Mm. And then all of a sudden, they become more conical and more shaped like breasts. It's like, well, what, what's happening here during the uh, second, first century BCE, first, second century CE? is some people, not all, are viewing them as breasts because they consider Artemis the nutrix, the one who, with whom they breastfeed, <laughs> just like Isis. Uh, and you're going to see this happening. In fact, there's one place where the Ephesians also call themselves the nurturers uh, of Artemis back. It's pretty funny because they love each other. Mm -hmm. So they're both uh, sucking each other's teeth, I guess, so to, so to speak, in a... Uh, strictly uh, <laughs> uh, uh, mutual friendship and love kind of way. <laughs> so what happens uh, is that now you have two sources, Jerome, but earlier, Minicius Felix, saying directly that they are indeed breasts. And Minicius Felix is writing during the 220s, during the time where uh, Artemis is being, you know, Artemis, her image was everywhere. There's no reason for him to make this up. But also, many uh, uh, of those who are making the statues start to chip away. And I caught, if I see a few of these, they start putting nipples there. <laughs> they start putting, carving nipples uh, onto the, all the, the polymastic form. Now it is literally a polymastic form as opposed to protuberances. So it goes from hanging fruit and eventually evolves into breasts in the viewpoint of some people, because we have ancient records that actually say so, but not everybody. And that's the problem. If scholars want to have one answer, and the answer is, are they hanging fruit? Yes. 
Are they breasts? According to some people, yes. According to others, no. And those are people who are living there at the time. Mm-hmm. Is that pretty good? So that, that kind of gives you a full answer. Yeah. So, and as Artemis becomes more personalized, they see her as the one who gives not only nutrition, you know, to the wild world, the, the natural world, uh, but uh, Artemis becomes the one uh, who takes care of individuals. And she, be, she becomes a very personal goddess like uh, Isis to the point where people would walk around and they had a personal faith in Artemis and you would go up to each other and you put your hand to your heart and say, and say in Artemis. <laughs> you know, it's like Artemis is in my heart, you know, it's like, wow, <laughs> where, where did that go? So there's almost a proto-Christian feel to that. Yeah. Also, the inscriptions, many of them declare Artemis as Curia, as, as Lord or Mistress, and they also declare her uh, uh, not only as Lord, but Sotorea, Savior. So you're going to see Lord and Savior all over the place, inscriptions dedicated to Artemis and the Ephesians uh, in the 1st century BCE and 1st century CE and 2nd century CE, which again is very interesting. So you're going to have a very much a very strong devotion to Artemis in, on an emotional level. And just recently they have, they have also realized that uh, there is a, even a mystery cult that was connected to Artemis as well. And uh, yeah, hmm. I think I answered the question. You absolutely did. And uh, I, I definitely want to start going down the road that leads towards, uh, you touched on Artemis as being a goddess of protection um, and connected with Isis and, and in that way magic. And I want to go down that road here in a second, but one more of the symbols just wanted to pick your brain. I'm curious, what do you think about the outstretched arms? Well, the outstretched arms, um, uh, obviously they held things, right? And, um, and, or they have their hands open uh, in, in almost a supplication. But um, I, I read the iconography as, as a symbol of power, uh, as a symbol of, of, of giving offerings to others uh, as a symbol of giving, uh, in a sense, uh, the, the bounty of her power to others. And I see that in connection to the ascribed magical uh, properties that is believed to be connected uh, to her cult statue. You see, with outstretched arms, this is how, in many cases, you do you do your, your magic in a magical sense. You're, you're giving power. And I, here's, I'll give you a fun illustration. The image of Artemis of the Ephesians was considered a magical amulet too. And we have coins depicting Zeus holding an image of Artemis of the Ephesians uh, in his hand as if he's using a tool, uh, as if he's using something that's used for magic. We have the same thing with Mount Pion, represented uh, as a deity holding the actual image. So the outstretched arms is a continuation of that purpose, that magical conduit idea. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. And and speaking of magic, I... 
Uh, one of my favorite parts of the book actually was the uh, Ephesian Grammata. Um, and for me, that chapter and the idea in, the chapter on the idea in Dactyles was worth the price of the book alone. Um, oh, yeah. I, I, I no, thank it. you. So yeah. let's talk about the Ephesian Grammata because it is a, a huge part of the, of the cult. Right. Okay. So the, uh, there are, and this, of course, contributes to the importance of Artemis of the Ephesians, uh, there are uh, certain words that are considered absolutely absolutely powerful, completely magical to do almost anything. This was, of course, happened over a period of time. Uh, these words are aske, kataske, lix, tetrex, denomenos, patlosia. Anyway, uh, those words, which I have memorized, um, uh, those words were were used to uh, to protect, uh, to gain love, uh, to help others, uh, to control the natural forces. Uh, in many cases, they are connected uh, to uh, fate and moving fate in favor of what you need. Uh, and and we know that uh, from various um, uh, inscriptions uh, and, and various places. Uh, but uh, what I want to say is, I want to go back earlier. Uh, the evolution of the Ephesian letters, I, I guess it's the idea of, you know, the cult of Artemis of the Ephesians, as I told you, is for everybody. You know, and so many of the religious belief systems were specialized, and people have to go through initiations and have to do various practices in the temple, and it costs a lot of money when it comes to, uh, you know, uh, giving offerings. And a lot of, lots of, why can't we just have a magic word that is easy for us to know that can all, that can encompass everything? It's like the ultimate abracadabra. And, and for them, it's like, hey, the Ephesian letters. And it became so popular that Clement of Alexandria, uh, who was a Christian Platonist uh, during the second century, wanted to give away the mysteries because they were considered all too powerful. Uh, too many people used them, and he wanted, he wanted Christianity to diffuse its energy, its power. Uh, but they were everywhere, and we, we find references, references to them everywhere as, as well. Uh, the earliest form that we find goes back to the 5th century. So that's quite a ways. Uh, and it doesn't include all the Ephesian letters, magic words that we have uh, in the sets that are recorded uh, in the 1st and 2nd centuries. But they have a lot of them. They have versions of them that seem to develop. And by the time we get into the 4th century, uh, into the 300s, uh, we, we see that these Ephesian letters uh, have become a little bit more closer to the ones that we have nowadays. So there's an evolution that occurs. But during that same fourth century, we have references to the Ephesian letters, and they're called Ephesian letters in these sources. Uh, in literature, it does appear. And so you're going to have, for example, uh, uh, when it comes to uh, getting married, when you get married uh, in Ephesus, you go around in a the priest goes around in a circle around the married couple, 
and they pronounce verbally the Ephesian letters. And when they do so, it's believed to protect them from harm, from any dark energies, but also at the same time gives them a promise of fertility. And so it is said verbally. At the same time, this, during the same 4th century BCE, we find a, a few other references. In this case, uh, they are written down and they're used as an amulet. Uh, and the very words as written down have magical pra uh, pra uh, powers to protect a person. Uh, and, and, of course, it's against evil spirits. Now, I don't like using the word demons or daemons because in the ancient world, you have good daemons and you have bad daemons. But uh, uh, the idea is it protects you from evil spirits, from harm. At the same time, uh, it enables you to be protected and give you good health. And so these words became very popular, like I said, as early as the 4th century BCE. And they're connected with the city of Ephesus. And that continues on for a long time. We do have references in two different sources. Eustathius, for example, and Pausanias, mentioned, mentioning that the, the letters were also written on uh, the actual cult statue itself. Although we don't have the cult statue anymore, we can't check it out. But that, that's what they say. Then again, this cult statue was in procession around the city of Ephesus almost every single, well, actually about two to three times each month out of the year. So I, I guess that quite a few eyes will be able to see it <laughs> to confirm whether or not he's making it up or not. But the Ephesian letters were very important. Certain letters uh, are important in and of themselves. The majority of the Ephesian letters the sequences that we have found start with aske kataske or askean kataskean. The majority of them do have that beginning. A large portion of them have include damanios uh, as part of it, and quite a few will have lix tetrex uh, in the combinations. Uh, now, it's interesting when it comes to damanios. Uh, this word. It could be meaningless. Some have said it may be connected to the Hittite, but uh, it does seem to have a Greek root that is the word subduer. Uh, so damanios means the subduer, that one that uh, subjugates. Now, the interesting part about damanios is it turns out that this is the name of a special kind of daemon, a nature spirit uh, that is part of a collective of spirits known as the Idean Dactyles, which we'll talk about in a little bit. There's another one, and I think you wanted to talk about this, Lix Tetrex, and Lix Tetrex is mentioned in, um, uh, there, there is a few works related to Solomon, and according to the story, Solomon uh, wanted to, uh, <laughs> the story goes really short, is that the person uh, the young man who is building his temple is losing energy. Uh, these demons are a part of it. And so he wants to, so he's given a ring uh, by the archangel Michael, and this gives him power over these demons. And uh, of course, uh, uh, Solomon wants to make these uh, demons build uh, the great uh, temple of Jerusalem. And one of these demons he comes across is Let's Tetrax. 
which is exactly uh, uh, two of the names in connection to uh, the uh, the um, uh, the Ephesian letters, and uh, one represents, I believe, the earth. The other represents the wind uh, from the derivation, and uh, specifically the uh, the south uh, uh, the southwest wind. And so what happens is he uses this ring uh, to have power over this demon, and the demon or daemon then is forced to build uh, the temple of Jerusalem. And so you do have a reference that comes. Uh, uh, that enters into Solomonic uh, uh, contemplation uh, and various circles into around the, the second into the third centuries uh, CE. So you do have that. So some some of the individual Ephesian letters do have significance on their own. We do also find the Ephesian letters a lot in the Greek magical papyri. They are also spread out, but in a lot of cases. Again, the Ephesian letters are connected to Artemis or Hecate, and that kind of interchanges with, with Artemis, and that's a whole other topic. Hope that makes sense. It does, it does, and it was really exciting um, reading your book as, as you dig through these ideas, um, because, yeah, if, if someone is familiar with the uh, Greek magical papyri, they're going to they're gonna notice some of these names um, in some pretty significant uh, spells in, in that work, in those works. Um, mm-hmm. It's just interesting to see the evolution, especially from 5th century BCE in, in the oldest tablet, I, I believe was found in Sicily. Um, yes. And you just see it progressively change a little bit, a little bit as the centuries uh, go on. Um, and then you just find a few names here, a few names there, mixed mixed uh, randomly in different works, like the Testament of Solomon and mm-hmm. Greek ma- magical papyri. It's it's really exciting to <laughs> to to well, read that. Well, yeah. What is really exciting also is the the Ephesian letters uh, gain more significance. At first, it looks like uh, taking a look at the Selenius, um, as well as some of the the other uh, southern Italy and and, and Sicily uh, terrestrial the, the the inscriptions. It looks like most of it has to do with trying to protect oneself from the various elements, from, from harm. And that's it, survival is the most important thing. Then as time goes on, they say, well, survivor, sur- survival is one thing, but we need this uh, specifically not just to survive natural forces, but we need to be proactive and make sure that we fight against these evil spirits. And so they add that protective aspect to it. Then they say, you know what, not only just protection, but let's make sure that it also connects to uh, preserving life, protecting life, so it may become abundant. And then it goes, wait, what's more important when it comes to abundance than childbirth, right? So let's connect this with childbirth. Mm-hmm. Hey, why don't we connect this to our health in general that extends to one's health? And then, of course, the next connection is, well, we got to make sure we use these Ephesian letters uh, for marriage because that's fertility and health and everything else and prosperity for, for the community. And, and the, the ideas start to spread. And by the time you get to the first, second centuries, they're using the Ephesian letters for love, yeah. all these love spells. And so it starts to, as Artemis of the Ephesians starts to encompass all these different goddesses, 
so do the Ephesian letters seem to start to encompass everything when it comes to um, from everything from from protection to uh, gaining uh, uh, gaining profit. We have we have spells to gain profit uh, and love and, uh, and productivity and and so so it becomes all encompassing magic formula, and then everybody starts using it. What's interesting, though, is that you could say that uh, profitability is related to fertility mm-hmm. and love is related to marriage. So yeah. in a way, these extensions and functions are still recapitulations of the original, uh, uh, of the original purpose of right. this, just extended yeah. into a more universal manifestation, which is fascinating to consider. Oh, yeah. No, it, it, is, it is very fascinating well and the one i was going to mention is that eventually uh they will be used uh even for uh descending into the underworld and being protected from death according to the greek magical papyri uh so i mean we're, we're talking the katabasis you know the descent <laughs> so and if you spread some sesame street uh sesame street that's funny sesame Street, uh <laughs> along with it uh, you can avoid death. I mean, that's, and of course, that's the, the, the greatest protection of all. So, uh, yeah, uh, the Ephesian letters were considered uh, uh, pretty powerful. Uh, and we find them in different forms. We found them uh, on the image of Artemis. Uh, we have found them uh, in, um, uh, and of course, uh, obviously, different uh, fragments and literature and uh and we even find them in references in Apollonius and a few others. So, yeah. Um, uh, and, of course, the idea in dactyles, uh, they're important, too. And that's a whole other topic, because one of the Ephesian letters uh, is known as Domenius. And that happens to be one of these um, metallurgic uh, underworld sprites, uh, spirits, uh, that uh, who are also connected to protection, uh, connected to Mount Ida, uh, and that's another fun story. If you want, me, I'm not sure if you want me to go there with Ida and Dactyles. Yeah, yeah, and and if we can focus in on Demonaeus as well, because he he's, which you are, but uh, he seems like a pretty significant character. He's listed in the Greek magical papyri alongside Zeus and Adonai, so um, pretty powerful. Well, and of course, what they'll, what they'll do is they'll take his name and the root, and they'll say it means uh, to subdue. So it is simply the subduer, that, that which uh, makes things happen. And that's why, in many cases, uh, he, is, he is put shoulder to the shoulder uh, with some of the others. Which, of course, is funny because you're going to have, yeah, you're going to have, a, yeah, Zeus, which is, has a, a you know Greek and then of course Roman connection and then Adonai which is obviously has a Jewish connection. There, the funny thing is is Demenios, uh turns out to be positive within the Jewish milieu, which I think is fascinating uh, because Lix Tetrex, one of the other Ephesian letters, uh, uh, are looked down upon right. and subjugated and forced to do the work. Demenios is okay. Is apparently a okay when it comes to Jewish magic. You, you can use that one. Uh, this is the subduer, and I, I think maybe uh, that is because they will uh, transplant that idea over to the the concept that well, God is the subduer, and this is one of his agencies or one of his powers. 
it's a possibility. Also, you're going to have maybe some connections to the Demiurge, but that's a whole other path. I'm not going to go down at this point. But uh, yeah, uh, and what will happen, we'll go back a little bit ways here, is that once upon a time, there was a mountain, two mountains, by the name of Ida. Uh, there was a Mount Ida uh, that is located in the middle part of Crete, and there's a Mount Ida that is located in the Troad, which is a north, uh, a northwestern uh, Asia Minor, now Turkey today, so next to uh, the ancient city of Troy. And uh, we take a look at the word Ida, and we got to realize uh, it comes, uh, the name itself derives uh, from an earlier source, obviously, and uh, that the word Ida, uh, we find in context within the, the Mycenaeans, for example, uh, in uh, Indo-European languages, we realize that Ida uh, is simply the word for earth. And you take out the I, and it just becomes da. And then, uh, so what will happen is that these are Mount Earths. <laughs> these are the great, uh, connected to uh, Ida Mater. The word Mater, of course, means mother. And so Ida Mater will eventually, the I will disappear, and it'll become Da Mater or Demeter. So that's how that operates. Now, there is, originally, before there was Zeus, uh, the, uh, the consort of Demeter was Poseidon. You see, what happens is that uh, pos is an early form of the word spouse. And if you're the spouse of Ida, you would be called Poseida, or hence Poseidon. Is that fun? Wow. <laughs> so, so that's the original. And then, of course, we know uh, that the Minoans of, uh, revered will become Poseidon. Obviously, their Poseidon adventure didn't go very well uh, concerning the fall of their civilization, the Minoans. And uh, he was originally connected with the three-part areas of, of the sky, uh, the, the earth and the underworld, hence his uh, connection to earthquakes. Uh, and connection to horses. Uh, but what will happen is that because of what happens with the Minoan fall uh, and the, the eruption, uh, you're going to have Poseidon having a job transfer. And he he probably deserves to become uh, the god of the sea <laughs> for that purpose. And then that empty space is given to uh uh, below uh, is given to Hades, and, uh, and then above, of course, Zeus will take over. But uh, what will happen is that uh, there is at the feet of Mount Ida, uh, you have the dactyles. Uh, that's the feet of that's the you know, and so and so this goes into uh, connection to the metals below, and the ancients believed. Uh, that uh, metal was uh, was sacred, especially when forged. As it turns out, that when at the, at the inception of the Iron Age, uh, you're going to have magic happening to create iron, and these little spirit sprites will be connected 
to the foraging of iron, and these, of course, are the Ibn dactyles, the dactyles who are obviously the feet of Mount Ida, but there are two Mount Idas. Well, it turns out that uh, one of these uh, spirits are, is called Demenios, the one who subdues. Now, a lot of scholars are not sure how to interpret this because here you have uh, a sprite connected to iron, the foraging of iron, and we realize that as we went from the Bronze Age into the Iron Age, iron was more efficient, lighter, uh, and uh, easier to make. It was literally magical, and you can understand that uh, that this would be uh, a subduer <laughs> in an actual sense. You have the fall uh, during the, the late Bronze Age of four, uh, sorry, three major civilizations. You have the Egyptians get weakened, the Hittites uh, are destroyed, right? The Mycenaeans, half of them are destroyed, the other half become the Sea Peoples. Uh, and uh, you have the great fall of the Mitanni and other kingdoms. And uh, at the same time, the Sea People uh, who are connected to this fall have iron. Uh, even though iron was, was first being used in the Hittites, it wasn't so widespread. So, so iron is connected to subduing. So many uh, scholars will say this is one of the reasons why uh, this is considered magical and the subduer, Damenios. Does that, does that make sense? So you have that logic. But in other cases, they say, well, no, the subduer, get this, uh, is a reflection of an earlier, more primordial uh, deity that becomes, as time goes on, uh, demoted into a sprite and uh, uh, demoted into these daemons, but it once had a, a larger amount of power, and this memory within popular culture continued all the way into the first and second centuries. It gets better. The idea and dactyles are connected. Uh, in, in, the, in the Troad uh, at Mount Ida, they're connected to Adrastia, but they are also connected, Adrastia in turn, this goddess, who is connected to the Mount Ida in the Troad, is also connected uh, to Kibbele, the great mother goddess. Now, what will happen here is that uh, the Idean dactyles give birth to the uh, curities. The curities, you recognize that, yep. these are these daemons, these air daemons with their waving arms that will be the ones who protect uh, Zeus, you know, uh, and will also be the ones uh, who protect Artemis and Apollo as Leto gives birth to them at the Ortega Gardens. These curities are set up and they're waving their arms and they're doing their magic in order to ward off a very upset and angry Hera, <laughs> trying to throw her off the scent. Uh, and in turn, these curities become the official name of the priesthood of Artemis of the Ephesians uh, in the city part of the cult of Artemis of, of, of Ephesus uh, at the Patanium, which is the city hall. 
which is again an interesting point. So, so that means they named the priests, uh, the curates, named after uh, the, uh, the the wind, uh, air uh, spirits, who in turn were offsprings from the Idean dactyles, and who were understood as servants of the Great Mother. In this case, they become the servants now of Artemis of the Ephesians, who in turn is now understood as the Great Mother. Right. Isn't that fun, all that amalgamation? Oh, it's wonderful. I, hope, I, I love the, I hope that, that works. Yeah, I love the direct connection back to Kiboli then, um, yes. with the dactyles and, and the cortes. Um Janice, do you have anything? It's just remarkable, the coherence of, of this when you present it this way. I mean, it... Um, I, it really makes it more understandable and also helps to contextualize, um, you know, other, other esoteric and cultic movements going on at this time. Oh yeah. No, there's, 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 there's what's that, what's, what's happening with Artemis of the Ephesians is that she's a confluence of so many different goddess cults and she becomes understood as this universal goddess. Uh, I'm not going to say it's a move towards monotheism because a lot of people argue that, but it is a movement towards uh, blending together because of the, of the Roman Empire, blending together and creating a higher ideal of a goddess that uh, can, in a sense, uh, have the ultimate power. I mean, and that's, so you're going to see that quite a bit. Mm-hmm. What I think is fascinating, and I want to kind of go this direction if it's okay, yeah. is, is to take a look, because uh, I, I see this as one of the questions, take a look at Artemis within the landscape of Ephesus. And I think by doing so, I think it will it'll, it'll reveal how she usurps these other goddesses. <laughs> it's fun. Don't worry. <laughs> so what happens is that you have in Ephesus uh, a mountain called Mount Pion. Mount Pion was dedicated to the great mother goddess. And, um, and then you have uh, further over, you have the site of the Artemisium. And the Artemisium was, was a place uh, that was dedicated, well, at first it was dedicated uh, to Kibbele as well. But then when the Greeks arrived, uh, they brought in Artemis, the goddess of the moon and hunt, to that same general location, which is next to a uh, sacred spring and next to a sacred tree. Then uh, further to the south, way down on the other side of Mount Pion, you have a sacred grove. Uh, the sacred grove uh, may have been connected uh, to the mother goddess as well. So what will happen uh, is that uh, uh, Artemis, the temple of Artemis is being attacked and they want to extend the power uh, of Artemis to the city of Ephesus. So what they do is they tie a rope from the columns of the Temple of Artemis to the city walls, believing that the magic power, the energy, the protective power of Artemis will flow through those ropes to the city, 
Well, the city was saved from its siege, protected from its enemies, and they were victorious. It worked. It worked. So they thought, let's make it permanent. So they built a road, which is the Via Sacra, from the Temple of Artemis to the city itself. Well, what will happen is when the city moves further down, because uh, the harbor is retreating, they just continue to extend that road. Now, what happens is, is that then that road, what it does is they decide to have it looped around Mount Pion, almost like a lasso. Got it? Well, Mount Pion is, is connected to Kimberly, the, the great uh, mother goddess and the mountain mother. But what is fascinating is that also around the perimeter of the mountain, they had buried their dead. So when they made that circular road around Mount Pion, they also circled around their ancestral tombs. Well, who is the guardian of the underworld, who is a goddess who protects that? And that, of course, is Hikate. So now, they, on Mount Pion itself, and by the way, I, again, I was there when they found the cult site of Hikate on Mount Pion itself. That was very exciting. Oh, I bet. Unfortunately, they, they, they found uh, uh, the corpses of little dogs, because that was an offering. I feel bad about that, but... Uh, I like dogs and cats, but anyway, uh, the point is, is that it was dedicated to Hikate. Well, you can see how through this, this evolution, it's taken on these ideals based upon physical geography. Now, the road meets up on the other side, and when it meets up on the other side, it forms a triadus, a three-way crossing, that then continues on towards the Ortega Gardens further to the south. This three-way crossing, of course, becomes sacred to Hikate dash Artemis, Artemis Hikate. We even find inscriptions that say both. So now you have a sacred site dedicated to Hikate. Uh, and so, and then of course this road continues on to the Ortega Gardens. It connects that holy site. So via the various roads, uh, you have a connection to Hikate, Kibbele, uh, and of course the Greek Artemis as well uh, as the uh, others, as well, others as well. What I find is fascinating is this road then passes before it goes up towards the Ortega Gardens. It passes directly next to, uh, <laughs> hold your breath, next to the Serapium dedicated to Serapis and Isis. <laughs> so it takes it, it connects there too. I mean, it connects all these goddesses together. Now what they did, uh, and I have a calendar in my book, is that that that. Uh, they had constant processions all the time, multiple times a month, sometimes two times a month, sometimes more, that went around from the Temple of Artemis, went from the Temple of Artemis around Mount Pion, went all the way to the city of Ephesus and sometimes the Ortega Gardens. It did this, uh, like I said, uh, two or more times a month. And as they went around, there's altar sites all along the road in which they make dedications to empower that road, that holy pathway. So they believe, in a sense, that road, the Via Sacra, literally is uh, an energy conduit that connects all these places together. Hmm. That's awesome. And that connects to the concept of a sacred landscape or, or a theophanic 
landscape which mirrors the interior of heavenly reality. I mean, this it really flies in the face of the the later um, non Gnostic Orthodox Christian, um, you know, sort of demonization of of a pre-Christian mystery religion as ignorant, simplistic, you know, it, it just really destroys those polemics um, because we see that the depth and the, the, the depth and the profound esotericism, which is implicit in all of these practices. Right. Right. You do. And uh, we, we do now know, and the book talks about it uh, exactly, you know, how people, practiced the religion. We know uh, at the Britannium, I'll make this kind of, uh, there are two major spots connected to the cult of Artemis of the Ephesians in Ephesus as far as where the priesthood is. It's, it's a, what happens is that at first the priesthood was unified and there was a high priest and there's a high priestess. The, so but what will happen is that, hello, I'm here. Hello? Yep, yep. Okay. Okay. What will happen uh, is that the, uh, the, the, uh, the Megasus, uh, the high priest position was eliminated uh, around 30 BCE by a certain son of a freedman. His name is Polio. And he got rid of that, and it became all under a high priest, and, sorry, high priestess, uh, and uh, and a what's called a pretend, uh, as opposed to a high. Because what happened is the former high priestess uh, had to be uh, castrated. <laughs> you know, they had to uh, basically be uh, take care of that, uh, uh, and uh, and uh, that was very close to the Gali from the Kibbeli cult. And that means, and because the Ephesians were against doing this to themselves, uh, that means that only an outsider could be a high priest of, of, of Artemis. And that wasn't too popular from a political perspective. And I'm sure some wealthy people uh, bribed the new person in charge who was a representative of Augustus and said, hey, let's get rid of the high priest position. <laughs> we don't want some foreigner to do it. And we're not willing to, um, yeah, do the, the deed and cut that off. So, um <laughs> What happened uh, is instead uh, they divided the cult up into two different places. Uh, they have one cult that's connected uh, to the Temple of Artemis, and then they made a separate one dedicated to the cult of Artemis of the Ephesians uh, that was located in the city. So you got two spots, the cult of Artemis of the Ephesians uh, at the temple, which is under the high priestess, excuse me, high priestess, and the cult of Artemis of the Ephesians that's under the Pretane. Uh, he's a leader, uh, but he has other civic duties as well. And so there's two of them. Uh, but we have so much information about exactly how they worshipped Artemis of, of, of the Ephesians at both places. And, and so it's, it's amazing how much we know. And, uh, and, you, but, uh, and you lay it out, I mean... Every, pretty much every detail in your book. So if anyone's interested, which I'm sure after listening this long, you must be. Um, Dr. Uh, Rietveld has really spelled out this practice um, from point A to, to, to Z. 
um, which is awesome and kind of unheard of to have this much detail. Well, yeah, and the funny thing is, is that there's even inscriptions that say that there were at the Britannium there were 365 sacrifices a year. Well, that's every single day, yeah. you know, and you know, and like 190 days uh, of them, uh, they were restricted to just like you know cutting out uh, you know, the thigh and the heart. Uh, but then the remaining days, it was a, a holocaust, a full offering. I mean, we know, we not only know that, we know exactly how they cut the meat for the sacrifice and exactly which priest or priestess received that portion of meat. Right. We not only know that, we know the exact names of the officials who did so. And I, have, I list them in the book at the Britannium. I have their names down and who took their places afterwards. <laughs> so we could theoretically go into the past and have them named off, and we can actually go through and exactly uh, talk about how they worshipped uh, Artemis at the site, uh, at the Britannium. And I, I think it's pretty. I think it's pretty exciting, I, you know. And then, of course, we have the same thing going on uh, at the the Temple of Artemis. Uh, I list the names of the of the uh, the priestesses and who's in charge and their duties and what they did and on an everyday basis. So theoretically. Uh, you could go back uh, and reconstruct this. Uh, I, but uh, no, I, I haven't seen this anywhere. Uh, and it's, it, it's kind of upsetting to a certain degree uh, because uh, it sh this, this kind of work should have been done uh, a long time ago. Yeah. Uh, if that makes any sense. I mean, I mean, some scholar should have come along and, and, and worked on this because I'm kind of confused the, the information is all there. It's readily available, and it's easy to put together. You just have to know Greek uh, and German. <laughs> <laughs> and and, uh, and and once you once you get there, uh, you know that's that's it. You know, I mean, we we know exactly the kind of incense they burned before at the altar. We we know, uh, you know, exactly uh, the the trumpet players. I even include two songs that they they, they sang. Uh, hymns <laughs> as they did the sacrifices. Uh, I have the, the, of course, the incense offering and then the wine offering and, and the trumpet blowers, the, the names of the trumpet blowers. <laughs> uh, and uh, right down to the, the actual sacrifice and how they did that and the dedications and the prayers. It's all here and it's all within the primary sources. I don't have to do any invention. I don't have to do any reconstructive work. I'm not a reconstructionist. It's just all laid out. And like I said, it really surprises me this hasn't been done. Yeah, and that's why I was so excited. When I started looking at your book and I was I got really excited to have you on, I, I just looked through the table of contents and I was like, oh my God, <laughs> I have to have this book. And yeah, it's, it's definitely uh, worth every penny. Um, before we go, because we have to start wrapping up, I could talk to you for another two hours. But, no problem. Um, I can hear my wife grumbling outside, outside the door. <laughs> um, tell me if I'm wrong, but um, in addition to all the all the reasons that the Ephesian cult started to decline, um, which uh, there were contributions from natural disasters, from plague, um, yeah, and then of course from uh, kind of the opportunistic Christianity moving in at the, at the time that the cult was at its kind of weakest point. Um, do you think maybe that the, the cult got just too big? It almost seems to me as though um, at it, 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 it ramped up, it ramped up, 
to such a degree that it became unsustainable and um it, you know the amount of sacrifices the amount of money put into the to the worship um i think at one point you had mentioned that uh maybe an early christian was was writing about the city and and the sky was was blocked out by all the frankincense and incense uh being offered yes Oh yeah, the smoke. Do you think oh, yeah. that that played a part? Like it, it just got unsustainable, and here we go with some earthquakes and some plagues. And do, do you think that contributed? That they just couldn't keep it going. Well, that, that's that's a that's a uh, great summary, actually. Um, I think uh, what happened uh, is that uh, it, it started getting too big. Uh, you had the bureaucracy becoming too powerful. And more susceptible to um, uh, financial inducements. Uh, I look at the uh, at the records of, of the priests, uh, so the priestesses, and I start to realize and look at th- look through this. And the priestesses of Artemis of the Ephesians at the temple site itself suddenly it, it becomes very clear that they are there. These virgin um, priestesses, they're there because uh, of their parents who have money. And so apparently there's a little bit of bribery going, mm. uh, to get them in, uh, to these positions. And then I came across something that really throws me off. And that is, these are supposed to be virgin priestesses. But, uh, then it says, one says that she is the wife of so-and-so. It's like, wait a minute, how she can't be a wife of so-and-so, but she is. Uh-huh. <laughs> and then their daughter works. Uh, uh, but wait a minute. So they're kind of forgetting some of the rules uh, that they had in place. Uh, and it looked like that uh, uh, it became uh, a, a, a sense of patronage, you know, a, a way to gain power in the city. You know, you can get a job uh, so you can gain reputation through a municipal administrative arm, but you can also gain through uh, through the religious arm. And so a lot of politics became involved. And then what happened is that in one course 65 66 you have the plague and uh lucius verus uh he he, he you know the co-emperor marcus aurelius he died and many soldiers died and you have like almost like a bubonic plague that comes about and you're going to see immediately in the material culture a swift decline in the cult of artemis of the ephesians during that that decade when people are obviously dying so they're not making many monuments but what happens is a lack of enthusiasm to the point where uh, a one patron uh, built a great processional way, uh, a covered way along the Via Sacra so people can go there uh, and visit the Temple of Artemis when it's raining, which tells you, because they're trying to get more people to go out there, which mm. tells me people are not going out there. <laughs> they need to have some covered shelter. And so they're losing their enthusiasm. It starts to come back again during the reign of Septimius Severus in the first part of the third century. But then you're going to have another earthquake uh, in, in 262, which destroys much of the temple of Artemis. Or uh, some people say, well, no, actually it was the Gauls that suddenly came invading in, in 259, the 260. We do know that they did destroy parts of the city. And so this is pretty humiliating. And again, people are asking, where is Artemis? I thought she's a great protectress. Why isn't she helping us? And so this played right into the rhetorical hands of Christianity. Right. Uh, see, see, this is, and so you're going to see uh, works like the Acts of John, 
uh, and you're going to see other works that seem to reflect that she's not that powerful. Uh, we need to follow, you know, the Christian God instead. And they'll keep using that rhetoric. And we see this in, in various Christian works that are from the third into the fourth centuries. And so Artemis really gets the, the brunt of it. And uh, they did rebuild the temple after 262, but it was very smaller and more modified in form. And, uh, and once again, uh, it's, her reputation appeared to be tarnished. And uh, uh, then from there, uh, you have the cult of the, of the Virgin Mary, and it starts to grow. As it increases, it increases exactly at the same time the cult of Artemis of the Ephesian decreases. It's exactly the same time, and that's the fourth century. Yeah. So Artemis is, and so there's one symbolic moment in the middle part of the 300s in the fourth century, where they literally take the, the the famous image of known as the beautiful Artemis, and they bury her carefully in the ground, and they you know they didn't just throw her in; they buried her carefully. That's why she's so well preserved. That's the one you see in on, on magazines and pamphlets and everywhere else. Because the priestesses, priests and priestesses at the Britannium buried her in a ritualistic sense because they want her to be damaged. Uh, in fact, many of them were buried at this time, you know, realizing that things are changing. And uh, then obviously in, in, uh, in 391, 392 with the Edicts of Theodosius I, uh, you had the official end of paganism. And at that point, Mary uh, was extremely popular really popular in Ephesus. I mean, you can't believe how important she was by that point. Uh, and so she easily stepped in uh, to the mantle of Artemis of the Ephesians. Uh, and, uh, and so in a sense, the Ephesians being so used to worshiping uh, a female deity uh, for so long uh, made a transition to uh, this female uh, mother of God, this this Theotokoulos, and, uh, and they made that transition. And because of that, uh, and because of various agreements that happened at Ephesus after that, namely the Third Ecumenical Council, uh, it really is what inspires Marianology. <laughs> so, uh, so there is an important legacy of, of Artemis of the Ephesians, because so many of the attributes of Mary, uh, you won't find uh, of, of Mary from the first century or the second century or even the third century, but you're going to see it suddenly appearing in the fourth century. These are the same attributes that, that Artemis of the Ephesians had. So you can see where this mixture occurs. Very I think cool. I answered the question, right? You answered yeah. all the questions. <laughs> nice job. Um, <laughs> okay. Well, Dr. Rietveld, this has been really wonderful. Um, like I said, we can, I can go on f for another few hours, but um, we should probably wrap it up. Um, I want to thank you so much for your time and thank you for bringing this subject matter out of obscurity. Um, I'm, I'm, we're going to do our part and we think it's, it's a worthwhile story to tell a worthwhile goddess to recognize. And, uh, just thank you for all your hard work in putting all this together. Cause this is, this is a lot of work. Absolutely. And hopefully, uh, it inspires us to realize that, <laughs> When it comes to understanding religion, it's a continual evolution according to people's needs uh, and desires uh, and hopes. And Artemis of the Ephesians is no exception. Uh, she didn't disappear. 
she just simply became something else. Wonderful. Now, is there any anything you're working on now that you'd like to uh, mention, or uh, where where can people find more of your work? Um, okay, so I do uh, I, I do a public talks at Ipso Facto in Fullerton, and I do have many of those uh, uh, on YouTube to be seen. Uh, and um, I am hoping that within the next couple of years, I'm going to be putting together a tour uh, to uh, Turkey uh, to go to Ephesus and to see all this firsthand. I thought that would be exciting. Yes. And I am working on a few works right now. One is called Early Christianities, uh, and another is, is focused upon the uh, Minoan and Luvian religion and going into such topics as the origins of the Idean dactyles. Oh, wow. So there's a lot of, lot of fun that's, that's ahead. And uh, for that, I had to try to learn, which is not easy, uh, Mycenaean. Wow. <laughs> and so, and so that's, I figure as a scholar, I got to keep expanding my boundaries and, you know, why not? Uh, and so that's, that's my interest area. And uh, I do public talks again, not only at Ipso Facto, but other places besides that. And I, apparently that's about it. And I'm, of course, a teacher at, at Cal State Fullerton. Uh, I'm a professor there. So, yeah. Cool. I will link to, to those talks and look forward to this, this future work that you're talking about. And would love to have you on again to talk about some of these other topics as well. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's been a lot of fun. And and both of you, it's, uh, this has been, a, this has been uh, a great experience. I love this conversational uh, strategy. Uh, I think it works. Awesome. It brings people in. Thank you, Doctor. All right. No problem. What a great conversation. Thank you again, Dr. Rietveld. Um, he is just a, a super fun guy and an amazing resource for us and for everyone out there. Please take advantage of, of uh, his writings. You'll be glad you did. I mean, his book, I've said it a million times during the, the show, but it's, it's really a worthwhile thing to, to uh, check out. Um, it is just so dense with high-quality material you you won't be sorry you checked it out yeah yet again i feel totally enriched by another profound mind who is doing uh, groundbreaking work and he also really seems to understand the way that the different mystery cults um interconnected he seems to understand the context of the cultures that the cults that he studies arose within. He even understands, you know, specific details about, you know, how statuary was altered at different points. And that's the perspective you're going to get from somebody who is clearly not only an archaeologist, but an enthusiast. So you're getting the rigor of a, of a scholar combined with the passion of somebody who is, is really an aficionado. And I, I was deeply impressed by everything he had to say. I am excited to listen to this interview. I will probably listen to it repeatedly. Um, we will uh, link to some of his videos. He's got videos on YouTube, as well as uh, a link to his book, which I highly recommend, of course. Yes, please buy it. If you're interested in any of these subjects, you know, 
Diana. I could see ancient culture, the interface between the mystery cults of antiquity, even early Christianity, um, including Gnostic Christianity. You will not be disappointed by his work. We didn't get to touch on everything we wanted to get to just because there was limited time and there was just so much. Um, For instance, um, we could have spent a good hour just talking about the connections with Hecate. Um, We could have spent a good hour or two talking about uh, the connections with the early Christians. So, But all those details um, are in the book and a lot more. I mean, there's there's a lot of symbolism we didn't really get to. So yeah, he covers it all. And if you guys want to hear him on the show again, let us know. Tell us. Because there's certain people that we are excited at the prospect of bringing back on, and he is definitely one of them. Um, so we don't want to, you know, overtax your ears with our uh, banter. Uh, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna probably conclude here. Dominic, do you have anything else to say? No, I think we covered it. I think we, uh, yep, that's good. Where can people find us? Uh, Facebook. We have a web page. We have a Patreon. You know what I mean? You can do <laughs> some nice likes. You guys want to do like some spells for our prosperity? our health, you know, you could do a little Solomonic spell for us to be successful in everything in our lives. Do it. Whatever, just send us gifts. Um, <laughs> say great things about us in public. It would be fantastic. And, you know, whatever, just it's cool. All right. On that note, uh, we will see you in the next episode. Thanks for listening. See you guys. Bye.